0: I'm Helen Avery with the Green Finance Institute, and you're listening to Financing Nature from GFI Hive. This week, I'm joined by Nature Metrics CEO, Katie Critchlow, to talk about the role of data in moving to a nature-positive economy and how environmental DNA is helping companies measure their impact on biodiversity.
1: The world needs good data, and it needs it now because every year we're losing more and more natural populations and if we don't even know what we're losing, you know it's hard to sort of stem that that flow of loss so we can interpolate across whole landscapes and understand value or risk then you can scale up even further and you start to get into the realm where people go, oh right, okay, we're at a big enough scale now that it makes sense that I I could understand the risk across my whole portfolio of my investment portfolio or my supply chain portfolio and and that's the exciting tipping point where we can start to address drivers of business case for monitoring biodiversity.
0: Good day to you. Uh, Thank you for joining me this very sunny spring day in London, at least. Um, I hope you're all well. Our guest joining us shortly is Katie Critchlow, uh, which I'm really excited about. She is CEO of Nature Metrics, which captures environmental DNA in water bodies, soil, and it helps assess biodiversity that is present. And it's helping companies all around the world better understand their impact on nature. It was set up in 2014 by Dr. Kat Bruce, Professor Doug Yu and Professor Alfred Vergler, who are molecular ecologists. Um, So we're going to hear all about that work today, but also the role that data plays in shifting us to a nature positive economy and in developing investment opportunities. So let's get going. you so much for joining us, Katie. How are you? It's nice to see you.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, really good. Thank you. Lots going on, but yeah, really good.
0: (laughs) And super excited to talk to you today about eDNA, environmental DNA and technology that's supportive of this shift towards nature positive or investment in nature from the private sector. But before we get on to that, I was reading yesterday doing some cyber stalking um, about (laughs) your career path and it's so interesting and so I wondered if you could sort of talk us through that and how you ended up in your role as CEO of Nature Metrics.
1: Yeah so um, I started out as a biologist so I studied biology at Oxford um, quite a number of years ago and that really studying ecology gave me a really good understanding of just how complex Life is. So, when we talk about biodiversity on nature, we're talking about all living things on earth, from bacteria to blue whales and all the genetic diversity and everything that they have. And so, what you realize is we don't know a huge amount about how important that whole system is to our life support systems everything from the biodiversity in our own guts that we don't yet understand, all the amazing things that that does to regulate our immune system or our mood, all the way through to all the amazing things that happen in forests far far away and and how that impacts on our atmosphere and the air that we breathe and and all that sort of thing so I left university thinking oh gosh I really want to do something about the fact that most people don't understand how precious life on earth is and and how we're taking away as we sort of say the Jenga blocks not knowing when the the tower's going to tip. So um, my first job was at Marks & Spencer. So I went to um, help them. They were just being targeted by Greenpeace for sourcing um, illegal wood from the rainforests of Indonesia. So I went to just go and do a couple of months My first Mm. journey was out to Indonesia to look at that. And then I took a job as managing all of the supply chains and raw materials. And so it was fascinating. Like every single raw material you can think of, prawns from Honduras, wood from Indonesia, cotton from Mali, cashmere from goats in Mongolia. (laughs) And, you know, and, and everywhere you looked, humans found ways to source product and make a profit whilst also you know, destroying the planet. And the start of my career, I felt very, very um, despondent about. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, we're just finding so many ways to mess things up. And and I think I'm really pleased and optimistic now that we've sort of moved now to net zero and nature positive and regenerative. And that's that's really cool. So so after Marks and Spencer went to Indonesia. Worked with WWF for a few years. And then I studied environmental economics at the LSE whilst I have my babies. And so that was because I strongly felt like giving nature a value was very important in the debate. You know, understanding how, how it contributes to the economy and and, and people's lives and, and everything like that. And I guess the thing that was lacking in all of those places was data right. and the ability to, for businesses or governments or NGOs to set targets. Even at WWF, it was very, very hard to measure wider biodiversity. They were measuring individual species that donors cared about, but the ecosystems that they relied on were very hard to measure and monitor. The lack of biodiversity data, the lack of a scalable way to understand the living world we're in, really holds us back from making progress on this exceedingly important um, issue, which is sort of why I came into the, the whole area of sustainability.
0: So then you found, co-found Nature Metrics to sort of plug this gap. Is that is that how it happened?
1: So um, Kat and um, a couple of academic co-founders sort of originally started up the business. So um, Kat had done her PhD in eDNA, looking at how eDNA for species like insects where you can collect lots and lots of them can show environmental change by by looking at the sort of cloud of different changes in the insect communities and so she founded the business with her two um phd supervisors Ah. and um a year later i came in as a sort of um you know business head to help the the group of scientists that had this wonderful idea and this wonderful technology to really then figure out how do we get this out then yeah i came in to sort of say right come on then let's let's scale this up and make sure that as many people around the whole world as possible can use this technology to measure nature at scale
0: oh brilliant and you're so right it does seem like so much research just ends up saying in academic journals which cost a fortune to read and aren't very readable yeah
1: (laughs) it is hard. And I think when Kat was first starting up, you know, talking to people about this idea, lots of people said, oh, isn't that a lovely idea? But it's not commercial. Who wants nature data? Mm -hmm. What's biodiversity? And, you know, that was only six years ago. And now, you know, we've got people falling over themselves Mm -hmm. to come and invest in us because everyone's realised nature is the next carbon, but nature is so much more complex than carbon. You know, carbon is just a molecule. Nature is all life on earth. The context and the the site specificity matters with nature. So you need a lot more data. You can't just rely on proxies. And so being able to generate sort of proprietary data sets at scale is now seen as like a very, very commercial thing to be doing, as well as a very impactful thing. And I think that for me is like, why I absolutely love nature metrics because every other business that I've worked in or every other organization, I've always felt there was a tension between the sort of, you know, the the commercial and the, and the impact and how do you make that work? And in nature metrics, I mean, there's sort of almost complete overlap in terms of our commercial and our impact objectives, because helping people to understand, how they impact on nature, and interpreting and understanding how they can then improve their impact on nature is our business. And so that's, yeah, that's a lovely thing to sort of come to work every day and feel like you're helping people to make progress.
0: So let's talk about eDNA. I'm sure those listening are like, okay, what is it? So it's environmental (laughs) DNA. Can you talk us through it in more detail? What is it?
1: Yeah, so um, all species in the environment, from, I'd say, bacteria to blue whales, leave behind their genetic traces in the same way as, you know, if we went to a crime scene, you might be looking for people's DNA uh, or their fingerprints. So um, animals shed DNA, skin cells, feces, all sorts of things all the time. And we can collect environmental samples and then take those back to the lab, extract the tiny, tiny quantities of DNA that the species have left behind, amplify the groups that we're interested in. So we might say, oh, can you tell us all the fish that's in this species? sample?" sorry. Then we sequence those, and then we can give a list of all the species of fish that are in that sample. So practically on the ground, you go and take a little scoop of sediment from the seafloor, you take a little scoop of soil from a woodland or an agricultural area, or you push um, water through a small sort of filter that fits in the palm of your hand. And we've now sold those kits, which are very, very simple to use. Anyone can be trained to do them. We've had school kids doing them clients do them we have ecological consultants doing them they take those samples in the field send them back and then we process them in the lab and then give that very comprehensive data set about all the species that they're interested in that are are in that area we've worked just all over the place and have found some absolutely fascinating species like the other day We were doing a piece of work and we found a tree kangaroo. And I was like, I didn't
0: even know that they existed. But that's, that's just awesome. <laughs> Not in the UK, I'm assuming. <laughs> no, 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 that was in Papua New Guinea. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what other sort of surprises have you had? I remember seeing the, the sampling taking place in um, Loch Lomond uh, last November over. Cot. Oh yes,
1: yeah. <laughs> I think unfortunately they didn't find Nessie. <laughs> yeah, we found. I mean, really cool things that like we've done a piece of work with one of the NGOs. I think it was FFI in Liberia where we found pygmy hippos, which people had sort of said that they'd seen, but they'd never had any evidence of them. So we found those, and that helped them to sort of classify an area for for improved conservation and. Mm-hmm in that same project we found red list fish species which enabled the area to be designated as a key biodiversity area so that was really nice occasionally we found things that people don't expect to be there and and they're like oh gosh you know that might be an invasive species or a protected species that they didn't know and you know a lot of people always say oh well if you give clients data do they really want to know don't they want to hide it but actually We've got some wonderful examples where they found it and then you, a mining company that we're working with has got together with all the f- farming and community around the mine and has put a sort of um, habitat plan in place, oh, wow. a species mm. plan for this. And that, that's actually just, it's only one species, but then they've, that's led them to be really enthusiastic about this. You know, they've talked to their community, they've started getting engaged on the wider sort of sustainability plan around the mine and we've got the head of environment for the company like talking about it all over the place and and he said look I've been trying to get people enthusiastic about our sustainability plan for a long time it's actually a way to get people really engaged in you know the reality of you know action on the ground and I think with all the talk of ESG and like that it can sometimes feel very removed from reality. And so that's been really, really nice to have some of those grounded bits of feedback where, yeah, uh, things are really changing.
0: So is that the typical client, Um, either uh, an NGO that wants to understand a conservation plan or or a company that's trying to understand its impact?
1: Yes, at the moment we're working with the sort of big site-based industries or organisations. So we do a lot of work with conservation groups, we do a lot of work with um, like nature-based solutions, folk that are now coming to want to make sure that nature-based solutions are positive for nature. Mm. But the the majority of our clients are the sort of big you know, infrastructure, um, energy, um, utilities and water. And a lot of those industries, with the exception of agriculture, really, have sort of they've had a lot of environmental regulation around them for quite a long time. But um, all of a sudden we're seeing this really interesting shift from people that want to do like a one-off, ticking the box for the regulation to really wanting to say, can you show me my long-term impact? Like I need to be reporting this now every year to my investors or my stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And we want to know like, are we having a net positive impact? And so our product suite this year, we're just taking some new investment to move from offering sort of one-off year-by-year, project-by-project services to offering that long-term view your risk and your value and your impact on biodiversity over time and over space and, and to provide more interpretation of, what good looks like because one of the things that we really noticed is all of a sudden people want to have a conversation about biodiversity in the boardroom but you can't have a conversation in the boardroom when you've got a list of like a thousand fungi species or you know (laughs) 20 latin names of fish or whatever Mm -hmm. So customers are wanting to know, well, what does this mean? Is this good or bad? Are we are we improving or are we getting worse? And so um the money that we're just taking now in our investment round is about then helping us to help customers to interpret that data to show improvements or change in their biodiversity impact.
0: And presumably your data is therefore highly supportive of companies that adopt the TNFD framework.
1: Yeah, so I think the TNFD is brilliant for us. It's a real driver of now the really the companies that invest in the companies that we work with, you know, together coming up with a shared understanding of what good looks like, what reporting needs to happen. And, you know, before I joined Nature Metrics, I spent a year out working with Ed Davey on the TCFD. And one of the things I noticed there is that lots and lots of effort went into the banks and understanding the financial institutions reporting requirements and much less went into the yeah. company reporting requirements. And actually, unless the companies report, the banks can't report good data. And so we feel very excited that we're actually starting to now talk to some of these big banks and and, and the guys that will want much more aggregated biodiversity data. And we're figuring out what type of products we can put there, but with a really strong understanding of what the site-based reporting needs to look like and and you sort of starting from the bottom up because there are a lot of sort of top-down types of assessments happening with biodiversity because lots of people start from the point of view of we can't measure biodiversity so we need to come up with a proxy and our our strong point of view is that really for your high-risk site-based assets... There needs to be some bottom-up, you know, from-the-ground data if you really want to manage your risk and your impact properly.
0: Presumably, eDNA then helps as we move towards more standardised metrics for biodiversity yes
1: yeah using eDNA can help you to go from you know a guy out in the field with a clipboard monitoring biodiversity which in some cases is still really important because eDNA can't do everything but eDNA can really help to scale up monitoring so with one water filter you can get all the species in an area but you can also get different taxonomic groups so you can get your amphibians and your mammals and your fish and your bacteria um and so it gives you that scale and then one of the really exciting new products that we're doing is linking our edna point data with gis data layers so that we can interpolate across whole landscapes and understand value or risk continuously across whole landscapes wow. by using machine learning, combining the, the point data and the the GIS data layers. So then you can scale up even further and you start to get into the realms where people go, oh, right, okay, we're at a big enough scale now that it makes sense that I could, I could understand the risk across my whole portfolio of my investment portfolio or my supply chain portfolio and and that's the exciting tipping point where we can start to address drivers of business case for monitoring biodiversity and we're hoping then we get into a positive feedback loop where you've got more of the the buyers and the investors asking for it, the site-based guys can provide more data and so we can set better targets and that becomes very sort of reinforcing in terms of, you know, moving forward and understanding that companies can set targets and that we can move to a more
0: nature-positive economy. I mean. My God, it's so so exciting. Um, and then is this sort of tied in also to the sort of very large landscape scale um, assessment of the work you're doing? I believe with IUCN on their eBioAtlas. Can you share a bit more about that? <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. So, one of the things we like to do is think big. So, there was a um, a lovely guy who's just actually left as the head of freshwater IUCN who we sat around the table with and he said, what's the biggest thing we could do on biodiversity? Because this is just revolutionary in terms of the amount of freshwater data we could access. And so we said, well, why don't we try and map the whole world's freshwater biodiversity? (laughs) And so um, that seems big enough for, you know, the next year or so. We've launched a program where Nature Metrics is giving 30,000 samples at cost. um, And we're trying to raise 10 million pounds from philanthropic means to then fund that. It will be, I think, the most comprehensive and contemporary data set of sort of life on earth that exists because the world needs good data and it needs it now because every year we're losing more and more natural populations and if we don't even know what we're losing you know it's hard to sort of stem that that flow of loss so we're we're really excited about that and yeah looking for looking for more donors
0: for that project (laughs) noted donors
1: well the data will all be made uh, available we're making sure that any non-commercial user can then access that data for free and then there will be a charge for commercial use but that any of the data that has been funded philanthropically the money will then go back into a revolving fund with IUCN because um, one of the things that we notice is that biodiversity data is scantly available or you know it's very old data because there isn't a sustainable business model for creating that data and, and and for using it so we're hoping to get a really sort of positive cycle going where people get better data they want more data they want data to be up to date because some of the databases that are being used at the moment dates back to the 1800s and oh my goodness you're not going to give a representative <laughs> view no. of what's there now so
0: finding yeah hoping to find dodos and things like that yes <laughs> Data is really the key, isn't it, to this adoption of nature positive that we're all hoping for, but no one quite knows how even what is even nature positive. So I'd love to sort of shift now to talking about the role of role of data and technology and then also talking about the financing for the development of that technology. So what's your sense of this is a bit of a broad question, but where we are in terms of the technologies and data that we need in order to shift to, to nature positive.
1: Yeah, so I think there are a number of technologies, eDNA being one of them, there's bioacoustics, there's a lot of great GIS, Earth observation layers that you can now get. Um, some people are using drones and, and image recognition for species detection. So I think we feel really excited that there are a lot more ways now that enable you to collect nature data at scale. And we're looking at you know what other technologies can we bring in to our portfolio. I think from a financing perspective, there's actually a lot of money out there that's looking to invest in this type of technology, but there aren't very many businesses that are sort of at that stage yet where they've started to commercialize the technology, they've started to prove the market. So we've actually been getting engaged with something that TNC were running called Tech for Nature, where there's a group sort of supporting each other, because we want to see more tech for nature coming to the fore. The ecology world, like isn't, hasn't tended to be a very disruptive place you know like it's not something that's experienced a lot of disruption and innovation so we need to start at the ground up with the people coming out of university in the ecology space thinking about right this is an industry now that's right for disruption that is that people want to invest in and how do we get people innovating and, and getting excited about the businesses they could build for years there was a lot of talk about using carbon data and how we could generate it better and that sort of thing um, before people really started to put their money where their mouth is and I hope now there is more of an urgency and actually you know we're going to talk about wanting nature data we're going to start to get more and more people buying and and wanting to use it sooner than yeah carbon which I think went through many decades of talk before there was really action.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do you I mean in terms of so unlocking some of these barriers for nature tech, what do you think some of those might be?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've, um, we've benefited from some great Innovate UK funding. So we've got some work at the moment looking at how to sort of create lateral flow style tests for um, species in the field. I mean, I see one of the big barriers is that leadership across business, across governments is very ecologically mm. illiterate. And so people just don't understand what biodiversity is or why it's important. So they still think of it. And I think partly the NGOs have been a bit responsible for people thinking of biodiversity as fluffy pandas (laughs) that we really want to save because they look nice. And they forget that it's like our food security and our climate and our, um, you know, our ability to manage flooding and feed ourselves and, and build homes and everything is reliant on nature. And there's so much else that we rely on that we don't even understand yet. So I think that's that is a big barrier and I think that's you know really bottom up work that needs to change but as I say with groups like the TNFD now and others sort of coming to the fore I'm really hoping that those groups get the ecology guys involved because one of the things that businesses often want to do is just to simplify and perhaps oversimplify too quickly so it's like oh, I'll set a target, but it's just got to be simple. It's just got to be one number. And so let's just find a, a proxy and then it's done and we can tick the box. And what we say is, look, we do want to make this simple, but you've got to understand that this is a very complex system. We've got loads of wonderful ways now of simplifying data with big data techniques and amazing data visualization. But you have got to start from like start with a complex and simplify up rather than saying, oh, we can't deal with the complexity. So right. we'll just go for simplicity, even if that doesn't, drive any different behaviours. So it's one of the things I've actually been with the TNFD, I've been quite impressed with so far that I think they've been much more explicit than perhaps TCFD was in the first instance around wanting to drive a positive impact, not just to sort of manage the systemic risk of the financial system or whatever, but, but genuinely sort of, you know, this has got to make a difference on the ground. And I think that's Really important that we'd see the wood for the trees in the sense of you know this is all about trying to make sure that businesses can have a bigger, a better impact on biodiversity. It's not about writing a better report or ticking a bigger box or whatever. Yeah, well, I'm
0: thrilled <laughs> to hear you say that about the TNFD. Um, it's it's hard, isn't it? Because you often think to get to businesses' hearts, um, you sometimes have to come in with the risk view. Uh, and that captures their attention and they kind of shoehorn the positive impact <laughs> in through the back door. Yes. At the same time. Yes.
1: Yeah. It's horses for courses, isn't it, in terms of what um, is going to change people's minds. But I think one of the difficult things about nature is that we have had so little ability to measure it that we don't know the half of why it's important at the moment. So give an example, like the the soil biodiversity. We've never had a biological data layer for the soil, really. There's so much bacteria and fungi in it. And then they're all doing all this stuff in the soil, which is driving crop health and resilience and disease and all that sort of thing. And the reality is we don't know quite enough yet about all those different functions. You can't necessarily put everything down in numbers and say, oh, this nematode is worth this and that's worth that. And that's one of the things I found when I was doing my economic valuation. So you have got to be able to understand that these are unknown and uncalculable, at the moment, risks, but that doesn't mean we should ignore them. It actually means that we should take the precautionary principle and really try to make sure that we don't lose anything else before we really know how vital and important it is. I think nature is one of those nice things. It's a little bit, I mean, when I was working on climate and energy, you know, you you, you said, oh, look, you can reduce your energy bills and that's nice. I mean, nature is also something that does people see it and they feel it and they like it and so it is in some ways easier to engage people in that conversation around nature and get them to feel it in their heart as well as sort of see it on their risk management sheet and everything like that but I do think that is a problem because the finance industry need to put everything in numbers and they need something to be input into their spreadsheets in order to manage you know to, to, to drive that risk management model and that that is hard and it's one of the things we're challenge with a lot in nature metrics is that we've got you know ecologists and scientists we've got 30 PhDs who really want to be super you know rigorous and and make sure that what the product we're selling is very clear but then you need to be able to simplify and get to something sort of that's not letting perfect be the enemy of the good in terms of you know giving people useful metrics now so yeah there's lots of discussion and debate at the moment about how do how do we enable something simple now but see that as a starting point but over time all this wonderful big data and these new techniques we can we can do better (laughs) is our sort of yeah sort of phase
0: phase it up um just switching to opportunity before we before we wrap up um are you seeing the use of this data help support investment in nature you mentioned nature-based solutions earlier but sort of keen to hear because you can measure the impact does it mean that private finance is more likely to say hey we'll pay for this conservation based on this level of impact
1: yeah, so this is another really interesting area which I think is just getting going. We've got loads and loads of people asking about at the moment nature-based solutions, things like biodiversity mm-hmm. credits are like all of a sudden like really coming onto the radar. And again, we're very, very cautiously excited about all these areas because we know that there's huge potential for much more funding to flow into nature if we can properly tell the story about it, we can properly quantify the, the positive impact. And as I say, then if you can put that in monetary terms, brilliant. There is a lot of work to do. If you look at like the carbon credit market, it took a long time to sort of set standards and become credible and that sort of thing. So... With nature-based solutions, right now, there's lots of people selling carbon credits. And I was reading something the other day where nature-based solutions credits are being sold for between $10 and $100 a ton, which is a huge spread. So we believe that if you've got a good nature-based solution where you can tell a story that even it's positive for nature which seems obvious but isn't always the case then you should be able to sell those credits at a a better price There should be more people interested in them being more robust so that's a start and there are people now starting to talk about stacking nature benefits or nature credits on top of carbon credits um, or yes selling biodiversity credits and I think as I say loads and loads of potential but we're very cautious about making sure that we keep very transparent and very robust about how that's being done. Because again, you know, a a simple calculation that you do that just then asks people to put money into something that is quite intangible is probably not the best way to build a sort of trusted, sustainable market. So loads and loads of potential and so much money interested to, to fund those things that we just hope that that money flows carefully and thoughtfully rather than you know just into the the first project that they find
0: (laughs) (laughs) yes totally agree um and wrapping up what should we be keeping an eye out for from nature metrics the rest of this year the
1: thing that we're really excited about this year, as I say, moving from these sort of one-off kits and, and projects that we sell, which we're still absolutely going to sell, but moving to services where customers can understand long-term impact. So we've just sold our first net positive impact product where, we're, as I say, we're combining our eDNA data with GIS data to value um, biodiversity across whole landscapes and, and show how that changes over time. And the brilliant thing is that that's like a you know multi-decade endeavor. You know, you can't talk about net positive impact at a mining site within a couple of years. So that's dead exciting for us. We've got an, a, a marine health dashboard coming out. We've got a restoration tracker to help people to monitor the success wow. of their restoration with a sort of absolute number between zero and one, which, you know, doesn't sound very exciting to the average person, but understanding that. Ecology has found it very, very difficult to be absolute about, you know, levels of success or that sort of thing. So we've done machine learning, data visualisation and some traditional ecological statistics to make that product. So there's lots of new types of products coming out that will come speak to a different audience, the same types of sectors, but different audiences. And and we're also, we've got some portfolio level products in the works um, for later in the year as well that will help the people that don't manage site-based industries, but want to understand where their biggest risk lies so yeah lots of which we're sort of trying to move to being what we call the global nature intelligence brand where you can come and talk to us about any types of nature related impact risk questions and 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 we'll help you to find solutions so yeah really really exciting year planned out and we just made an acquisition in Canada actually so we've incorporated Nature Metrics North America so now we're also um, have a wonderful new team and lab um, based just outside of Toronto. Fantastic
0: and um, hopefully one day I'll be able to just order a kit and test my pond. I don't have a pond, but if I had a pond.
1: (laughs) Yes, you absolutely can. I think that's one of the things we're really excited about as we grow is just making that that simple access to biodiversity data as accessible as we possibly can from the big corporates that we work with all the way down to you know the citizen scientists and people that will be helping us on the eBioAtlas.
0: Fantastic it's so exciting and Katie thank you so much for joining us and taking the time today it's so inspiring and really positive what you're doing Um, and actually we appreciate you coming on.
1: No my pleasure really nice to chat.
0: What a treat, such a positive and enormous step towards measuring impact on biodiversity And as we all know, what we can measure, we can manage. Um, uh, And I can't wait to get my hands on one of those kits myself. Um, But that's it from us today, however. We have Anne-Laurence Rouchet from Arova, uh, Willie Watt from the Scottish National Investment Bank coming up in the next couple of weeks. In addition to Roel Noseman from ASM, Bank of PBath. And Simon Zadek and Marcelo Frittado will also be here in May to talk about the new task force on nature markets. Elsewhere, note your diaries for May 13th, 10am to 11.15am UK time for a webinar with the team that brought you the Wire River Natural Flood Management Investment. Uh, It's going to be such an interesting webinar. Details are on the events page of GFI Hive. And while you're there uh, registering for that event, why not sign up to our monthly newsletter that brings you our latest case studies and nature finance news from around the UK and beyond. Until then, a big thank you for listening and thank you to our Financing Nature funders, the Esme Fairbairn Foundation, and last but never least, our editor Robin Lieburn of Fairly Media. See you next week.